So today we are going to continue in our study of the book of Acts. We are going through Acts chapter 2. And we are in the midst of Peter's first gospel sermon. Now we kind of started it off last week. Um, so this week we're going to continue on. And we will be starting with Acts chapter 2 verse 25. Acts 2, 25. Now, Peter is going to uh, quote from the Old Testament here in... Uh, Psalm 16, I believe it is. And he is going to lay out, in many ways, a case for Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we know that Jesus was among people for 33 years. That he never did wrong in that time. And that he only ever sought to do good. And yet... So many people, when they heard him speak, they hardened their hearts and they said things like, is this not the carpenter's son and are not his brothers and sisters still with us? When we think about how hard it is sometimes for our loved ones to accept who Jesus is and to accept his life-giving salvation, we need only to remember that there were people that saw him in the flesh and still refused to acknowledge who he was. And I believe there were people that intellectually believed, but didn't believe and have it change their spirits. Why do I say this? Because if you look through the New Testament, the Pharisees never once refuted the resurrection. They simply said, you cannot preach in this name. They never once said, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They just said, we don't want you telling others that Jesus rose from the dead. And even when obvious things would happen, like a healing, like we will, read, like we will start studying about next time, they would still try to detract from what obviously occurred. Remember that when Jesus was on the earth, they, many of them were witness to the time when the lame man was put through the roof of the house because he couldn't get up to the entrance to the door because there were too many people around. I love it when people realize that I can't see or that I'm not enjoying uh, some kind of experience I'm involved in, and then they make way and move and make sure I can get a good seat. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for this lame man, his four friends tearing off the roof tiles, throwing them aside so they can drop this man down. And the Pharisee said, who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? Because he said to the man, because he saw his heart, he said, 
Your sins are forgiven. And they said who they were thinking in their hearts, who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And he said, so that you will see that I have power to forgive sins, I also say to this man, rise and walk. And yet so many of them refused to believe. There was another time when he met the man in the pool of Bethsaida, at the pool of Bethsaida. And Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the Pharisees said, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? They care more about the bed than they did about the man. So as we dig into this passage, we realize that even though it may be obvious to us, it's obvious to us because the Spirit of God has illumined us, like Mike was talking about earlier. He said there was one point when we opened the Bible and it made no sense to us. But when the Spirit of God comes in, all these truths that at once did not make sense, finally do. And what a glorious effect that has on all of us. So for our first section today, we will be reading from Acts 2.25-28. So I'll just begin reading there. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, God said of David, He is a man after my own heart who will do all my will. But even though he said that, we know that David had his failings. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He committed murder of Uriah after that to try to cover up what he had done. So we know that when David is talking, he's not just talking about himself, but rather he's prophesying of something that would occur. Because as righteous as David was, it was only God's righteousness that filled David that made him righteous. So when he says, Thou will not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption, he's of course talking about Jesus. And I, I think this shows how Jesus knew that the Father was in control. No matter what happened to him, and that everything that was happening, Jesus knew. You know, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me if it be thy will. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He told his disciples, he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And he also said, I am come not to do mine own will, but to do the will of my Father who has sent me. So, Jesus took on the sins of the world and he descended as low as you can go. But God didn't leave him there. He rose him up from the dead. Jesus knew that 
God would not leave him in hell, would not cause him to see corruption, because he was the perfect sacrifice for sin, and he took it on himself once for all. Because he himself was not a sinner. And I just think um, the ultimate trust that Jesus had in his Father such a precious thing. In John chapter 17, he says, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. It's one of my favorite passages because it shows what Jesus really gave up. I don't think we, we really grasp the full significance of that. We, we, we read the passage in, in Corinthians. I think it's, I don't remember, it's First or Second Corinthians chapter 8 where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though you were rich, yet for your sakes, for my sake, he became poor. And we think about that in the context of the way we understand poor. He was born to a poorer family. His father wasn't a king in a palace but rather a lowly carpenter. And yet I don't think that's what the poor is talking about. You see, Jesus could have been born in the richest, most opulent family on the earth, and he still would have become poor because compared to what he had before the world was, anything on earth is poor. He owns everything in the world. He had control over everything in the world. And yet he condescended to be a human. And not only that, but the Bible tells us he's still human. He didn't inhabit that body for temporary, but he's inhabiting that body for eternity. And one day we will look on the one whom we pierced. But as we see how Jesus trusted in his Father, we also see the exciting end result. And I wonder if someone could read for me Revelation 1, 17 to 18. Revelation 1, 17 to 18. This is Jesus himself talking to the Apostle John as he is beginning to write down the things that would occur in the end times. But this is what Jesus said to John, Revelation 1, 17-18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So Jesus is saying, I am he that liveth and was dead. But now I'm alive evermore, and I have the keys to eternal life. What a precious truth that is for us, that Jesus alone has the keys to eternal life. And I think about when I meet Jesus, and I, I, I think about this, somebody mentioned 
this past week how we may be surprised by some of the people that we see there. We may, our human response might be, what in the world are you doing here? But I, I tend to think I might be like John and be much more preoccupied with what in the world am I doing here? Even though I know that my salvation is secure, I also know from whence it came. It didn't come from myself. It came from Jesus. As the psalmist said, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? And yet he does. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. I just want to share this story with you. I remember vividly an experience with Mr. Moody that brought rich blessing to me and many others when I was but a lad, 11 years old. Moody was visiting my father. This is Dwight L. Moody. He had left a satchel and umbrella at the home of the elder Mr. McCormick, and he asked me if I would walk over and get them for him. I was more than glad to go on the way home while carrying the satchel on the end of the umbrella, and I had the umbrella poised over my shoulder. I stumbled and broke the umbrella. I was gently disturbed. I was greatly disturbed by the accident and felt so guilty. I knew not what to do. I was afraid. Finally, I thought, I will tell mother. She can tell father, and father can tell Mr. Moody. Crushed with the burden, I hurried home and told my mother. She, of course, was sympathetic and told my father, and my father broke the news to Mr. Moody. So, you broke my umbrella, said Mr. Moody, rather sternly, I thought. Come here a minute. Fearfully, I went to him. He said, when you broke my umbrella, you became frightened and ashamed, didn't you? Then you thought, if I tell mother or father, they can go between me and Mr. Moody and straighten things up. Now that your father has straightened things up, you can come to me. Now, my lad, that is the way it is. With all of us, we are sinners and afraid of God. But God has provided a mediator Someone to go between us and him, and it is Jesus. You must come to God through Jesus. He died for us and is the way to God. I am glad this happened. I am going to tell my audience about this and turn them to Christ, our mediator. We read in Timothy, For there is one mediator, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man. Christ Jesus. There's not two options. There's only one. So, Peter shows how Jesus is the eternal heir of David's throne. Acts 2.29-36 Men and brethren, let me freely speak of to you, speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and gone, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, 
he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father, received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we see, again, as he was quoting from this psalm, we think about David, and and uh, Peter is pointing out there's there's no way this could be all about David because David is dead, and his sepulcher, meaning his tomb, is with us unto this day. We can go there; we can see him buried there. That's what Peter is saying. And then um, he's saying that uh, he's talking about God's promise to David that he would always have an heir on the throne. Remember, God said to Saul, I ripped, I've ripped the kingdom from you and I've given it to someone better. But then he said to David, because of your dedication to me and because your heart is one that's turned toward me, I will never allow this throne to leave you. It will be eternally in your lineage. Now the only way for that to happen is for someone internal, eternal to have that throne. And then um, Peter goes on to explain how David was not in a place of glory in the heavens. Um, so when he's saying, The Lord has said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy fools thy footstool. He's saying it's very clearly Jesus. In verse 31 he says, that He seeing this before spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And then he says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof you are witnesses. So he's saying this is talking about the Jesus who we proclaim to you as having risen from the dead. A definitive thing. And then he reiterates, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Philippians we read that um, Jesus has been exalted and given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder if we might look back 
at this promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. And then we'll follow that up with John 20, 26 to 31. So if someone can have that too. But if we could read first from 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. Your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man. With the stripes of the sons of him. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before him. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all these visions, Nathan spoke to David. So this came about because David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. It doesn't make sense that I would be in a mansion that I'd be in this castle and the Lord's house would still be this traveling tabernacle. He said he deserves a house where he can dwell in. So his heart was in the right place. And David and Nathan at first said, go do what's in your heart. How can it be wrong to honor God in this way? But then God came to Nathan and said, David shed too much blood. He will not build me a house, but his heir will build me a house. And so Nathan comes back to David and says, You can't build this house, but your son Solomon, your son will build this house. And isn't it a great picture of how God is with us, that even though he knows we will commit iniquity, even though he knows we will do wrong, he still says, I will not remove my spirit from you. I will discipline you. I will get you back on the right track. But I won't remove my spirit from you. What a wonderful privilege that is to be able to say with confidence as he says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. I am so blessed by that. And then if we could look at John 20, 26 to 31. John 20, 26 to 31. And after eight days again, his disciples were again, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So this passage, I just thought, very well underscores the sacrifice of Jesus that Peter is talking about allowed him to say to the disciples, peace be unto you. And it allowed him to meet Thomas where he was at. You know, I think Thomas often gets the shaft because I wonder if Peter was there, if Peter hadn't been there with the ten surviving disciples, would he have had similar doubts? Or John? We call Thomas Doubting Thomas because he happened to not be there. And yes, he does seem like a more practical guy in the detail that he wanted because he said, unless I put my hands in the marks on his hands or thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And yet we don't necessarily read that Thomas did those things. Perhaps he was just humbled so much by the presence of Jesus that he didn't need to do those things. But the point was, God, God knew where Thomas was and he knew what Thomas needed. And he knows where you are and he knows what you need. And he's waiting. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, then I will enter into him and I will sup with him and he with me. And yes, I think that's speaking to the unbeliever, but I also think it's speaking to the believer. Because sometimes we let life shove Jesus out. When what he really wants is just time with us. If we think about our earthly best friends, what, what do we most want from them? We want time from them. When, when we haven't been around a best friend or someone that we care about for a long period of time, we, we miss them. I think of Second John, when John is writing these things to the church, or possibly, even more specifically, it seems like to this specific lady that he's guiding in truth. He says, I long to see you face to face and to not always write to you with pen and ink. You see, we can write letters to someone and that can be a balm for us. It can help us stop from missing them. But there's something about face to face. There's something about seeing that person that matters to you so much and being able to hug them and being able to touch them. Perhaps that, that's why Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. He wasn't necessarily talking about the kissing specifically, but the physical act of greeting one another is important. And so Jesus is the heir of David's eternal throne. And they, you know, they tried to make him king here on earth, and he went away because it wasn't his time, but there is a time. <clears throat> when he will place his feet back on this earth and he will assume the throne that was rightfully his in the beginning. You know, people say they want a one world government because that just seems like the great thing. If we all get along and we all live in 
one world of harmony, that would be a great thing. You know, I, I believe in that too, but I believe it's not going to happen until Jesus puts his feet back on this earth. And the Bible says that if I'm raptured, or if I die before he comes again, then I'll be part of that magnificent experience when he comes again and puts his feet on the earth. He's known as the Prince of Peace, but one day he's going to bring a sword. And by the very word of his mouth, he's going to fight the battle of the ages and he's going to win it because he already won it. Because he already paid the price. Think of the sacrifices that he made for us. He who is the bread of life began his ministry hungering. He who is the water of life ended his ministry thirsting. Christ hungered as man and fed the hungry as God. He was weary, and yet he is our rest. He paid tribute, and yet, yet he is the king. He was called the devil and cast out devils. He prayed, and yet he hears prayer. He wept, and he dries our tears. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver and redeems the world. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and is the good shepherd. He died and gave his life, and by dying, destroys death. Remember Peter said, This one who, God, who you have crucified, God has raised up and made both Lord and Christ. Paul said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It no longer exists because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. So, the third part, the Holy Spirit worked a powerful response to Peter's message. I don't know what your experience is, but I grew up in the Baptist church. And a very frequent thing that would happen in the Baptist church is they'd have invitations. Where the pastor would say, in response to today's message, would you like to come forward and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or would you like to come forward and rededicate your life to Christ? And I can think of one or two times when I went forward to make things right with the Lord, and it was real. It was a real experience for me. It made a difference. But... I can also see some danger in it. Because it's not the act of walking forward in the church that makes the difference. It's not the prayer that you pray. It's not specific words. There are many lost people walking around and saying, well, I walked an aisle when I was seven and I, can't, I, I committed my life to the Lord then. But if there's no fruit... That means they probably don't know the Lord. When I was working at Guiding Light Mission, I saw sometimes the same people 
going forward at altar calls day after day, week after week, but it wasn't making a difference in their life. And so I'm not going to say that it, that it's that you should never do it, but I have become convicted not to do invitations. I still think it's important. If someone needs to talk after the service, they want to talk about what it means to know the Lord, want to be sure that where they're going is heaven, then by all means, come talk to me or one of the elders here at this church. We'd love to show you what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But walking an aisle isn't going to save you. Going to church isn't going to save you. Only a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is going to save you. Only the Holy Spirit can reach down into your life and turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And one of the things I really like about this passage coming up that we're going to read now is Peter issues no such invitation. Peter's words in this next section are simply in response to questions that others ask him. So let's read together, shall we, Acts 2.37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy God. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many of the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, baptism is a way to publicly affirm that you have decided to follow Jesus Christ. And I think it's been unjustly separated from from conversion because some people some groups would tell you that if you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and were on your way to your baptism a few weeks later and died in a car crash or something of that effect, you would not be saved. But see, the thief on the cross had no chance to be baptized. He had no chance to do any penance. He didn't do any good works, even though Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. All he had the chance to do was say, Lord, I believe. Remember me. 
you think think about the man who whose son was a paralytic, or not a paralytic, but a demonic. He had a demon, and the disciples couldn't cast it out. He went to Jesus and he said, "My son is sore vexed by this demon. I can't. We can't get him out. Please do something. Please help." And he said, if you have faith, you can do this. He's talking about having little faith. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. So it's the belief that brings salvation. But baptism is an important step. And it was also well known in the Jewish circles as a way to separate yourself, to identify yourself I made this decision. I am now a follower of the way. If you read about Paul, as soon as he's converted, Ananias baptizes him. The Ethiopian eunuch, when he embraces salvation, he's so excited about it. He's like, what does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, you may be baptized. And they went into the water, the two of them, and he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he disappeared. And the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And if you read church tradition, you find that he made a very big impact on Ethiopia. Because his faith was real. And so... Peter says, if you want to be saved, repent and be baptized. And I say the same thing to you. If you want to be saved, repent of your sins. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you can be past this moment from death to life. But if you do not believe, you're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I love this verse in 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. Peter did not say, if you believe what I'm saying, come forward. He said, if you believe, you will receive. And these people were so pricked to the heart that they asked the question, what must I do? See, I think another thing that we need to do in our churches today is we need to be willing to not just tell people what they will get if they receive the Lord, but remember what Paul said when he was converted. He said to the Lord, what would you have me to do? I think that's something we should encourage others to do is to say to the Lord, what would you have me to do? If we could look at Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 very quickly, and then I'll recommend to you Acts 16, 25 to 31. We won't read it today. But um, at Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's the word of God that did the work that day, not Peter. The word of God was a two-edged sword, and it pierced these men and women to the heart, and it changed their lives. It is said that there was once but one gate in ancient Troy by which men might enter or leave the city, so there is but only one way to escape for us now through the door which Jesus opens to us. Behold, he says, I set before you an open door. That door is repentance, and Christ has opened it by shedding of his blood on the cross. The door is open. Are you going to come in? There's a little children's chorus that says, One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? That's a question we all need to ask. I'm thankful that as a young boy of five, I passed from death to life. And I hope that you, if you have not done so, will do so today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the Apostle Peter. We thank you for the redemption we see in his life. He was running for his life. He denied that he even knew you, and yet you were not finished with him. You used him to powerfully preach the gospel that day and bring 3,000 souls into your kingdom. But he didn't tickle their ears, Lord. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And Lord, may we be the same. Lord, as we part, I pray that you would make your face to shine upon us and give us peace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.